And that that fellow was a, a guy named Ivan Castro, who I'm forever grateful for his you know, investment in me in that particular moment. Ivan was someone I could connect to on, on multiple levels. Not only was he blind, but he had been injured in a, in a similar fashion. Admittedly, it, his injuries had been more extreme than mine, uh, which also helped me put things into perspective. But the, our conversation was an interesting one. And so, you know, it wasn't the, uh, how do you climb Everest or how do you, you know, go to the Paralympics or whatever else. I asked him basic things. I asked him about his relationship with his wife. How'd you meet your wife? Because I knew that he had remarried since he was blind. And he was, he had just had a little baby girl at that moment. So I was asking him about changing diapers. I, I said, where'd you come from? He said, oh, you know, I was, I'm, I'm stationed in North Carolina and I do, I travel, I'm, a, I'm the recruiting office. I was like, you travel? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, you go to the airport? I remember thinking like a blind person is fundamentally incompatible with an airport. Get on an aircraft fly to a different city, get off that aircraft, find a cab or an Uber, which by the way, Uber wasn't a thing back then. So it's like, you have to find a cab to get to a hotel that you're unfamiliar with. I thought the whole idea of traveling was not gonna be something I'd ever be able to do. But here, Ivan Castro, completely blind, blinded veteran, was able to travel to my hospital room and tell me and inspire me to know and understand that all of those things were within my grasp. All of those things from meeting and falling in love with, a, uh, with uh, his new wife, to having a child, to changing the poopy diapers, to going to the airport, to, to traveling to different cities. These were all things that I would be able to figure out how to do. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold, say yes to adventure, say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout Living It where I talk with experts in the experience of being human, those people who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and to live fully. Today, I have a guy who epitomizes that. Brad Snyder currently has six gold medals from the Paralympics, two silver medals, has one world record. We're going to talk about that world record. But he's a guy, he was an explosive ordnance disposal officer in the Navy, had gone to the Naval Academy, was over in Afghanistan, had an IED blow up in his face, lost his vision as a result of it, came back, became a Paralympic athlete, went to two games, amazing results, and is now studying for his PhD in public policy. He wants to become a professor. This is a guy that I feel like I am so excited because I want to learn so much from Brad. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to talking. Thanks, Chris. And, and I look forward to learning a bit from you as we as we discussed today. <laughs> it is awesome. I was so glad that we were able to get together a little bit beforehand. When I was reading about, first, you had the accident. Then you're in a coma for 60 hours. I read something, and tell me if this is true, that a week and a half afterwards, you got onto a treadmill and, and started running. What is that true? And how did that how did that work? I don't know that I ran at a week and a half, but so I was just to back up immediately following the blast. Well, so the the, the blast really kind of struck me in my upper body and my face, and I came to on the battlefield. 
and was able to sort of piece together that I was still alive, that I had taken most of the damage to my face, but actually was able to stand up and walk away. So I, I walked away from the blast with the help of my teammates and I walked to the helicopter and I got on the helicopter myself. And then once I got to the hospital in Kandahar, they sedated me because of the damage to my neck and my face and the, and the nature of the wounds. I think they were worried about you know, potential damage to my esophagus or my breathing tube and things like that. So that they, I was kind of medically induced uh, for that period of time. I say that to say, once there was no longer that hazard and I was able to come to and Walter Reed, the damage, you know, was all mostly superficial to my face, uh, which didn't preclude me from being physical. And so I, I don't know if I made the suggestion or if the suggestion was offered, but they said there, we have physical therapists here who can get you up and that sort of activity would be outstanding. And I being who I was, didn't want to be in the hospital bed any longer than I had to be. And especially the first few days that I was cognizant, I was pretty doped up. So I was very much relegated to the hospital bed. So the invitation to do literally any kind of activity to get out of the bed was very much welcome. So it started extremely basic, was on, on the shoulder of somebody just walking around my room but they were able to take me shortly thereafter, were able to take me down to a physical therapy room, a room you've probably seen, we've all seen like a big gym with bouncy balls and all that sort of stuff. And the, 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 the first activities were just, you know, can you stand here? Uh, can you do this? Can you do that? But we were able to kind of work through the basics pretty quick. And then there was like, all right, you want to get up on a treadmill? And I was like, absolutely. And that for me, I think in the, the post-injury experience is so foreign it's so odd especially i was also blind so i was new to being blind everything is so new everything's so foreign the ability to kind of get back to something that i knew really well i knew a treadmill i knew how to run i've been running since i was tiny you know i, I that's something i can kind of wrap my head around that's something i want to do so i got up on the treadmill and i remember like walking a mile and that felt like this massive achievement at that particular moment in time but then it started to escalate day after day. It was like, well, can we walk a little further? Can we walk a little further? Can we do a, like a, a three-second jog? Can we do a 30-second jog? So the long answer to your question, I, I can't recall to what extent we were running that quickly. I'm not sure. I was definitely on a treadmill at Walter Reed and uh, began sort of this physical rehab process that I picked up with when I, I transferred out of Walter Reed to a VA down in Tampa pretty shortly thereafter and worked with a great PT down there named Lindsay, who was able to kind of quickly say, okay, you know, this is what you're capable of, let's push the envelope. And shortly after I got down to Florida, within five weeks, we were definitely outside running. I was running on her arm around a kind of jogging path that, that you know, circumnavigated the VA there. Um, and that was a really cool experience. And again, the, the point of it for me was to kind of break out of this bond to the hospital. I didn't want to be in the hospital bed. I didn't want to be relegated to, you know, the the idea of being chained up in a hospital. I wanted to be outside. I wanted to be running. And PT was my initial sort of invitation to do so. Well, it's as much as your life had changed, right? I mean, the idea of the explosion of losing your sight, but then the running is the thing that showed that your life hadn't changed as much, right? Is that kind of getting back to the simple? Because like blindness is a weird thing in so many ways for us as the audience, because in some ways we've all experienced blindness, right? We've all been in the dark or fishing around for something, but 
we have the ability to cheat, right? We have the ability to, okay, I can't find that thing that I'm looking for so I can flip on a light. And it's kind of like, for me, I went through the same thing when I broke my back where I remembered being a little kid and I'd broken my ankle and I'm getting around on crutches, but I didn't always have to get around on crutches. When I broke my back and ended up in a wheelchair, I was always on crutches. So what was that like, that sense of the problem solving that you had to go through because you couldn't cheat? You couldn't say, well, I don't want to be blind for a moment. I need to, I need to find this thing. What's what's that like when you kind of get that moment of like, I'm fully in it? Yeah, it's an extremely insightful question because that's really uh, the, the crux of the whole thing is the permanence. Like you said, we've all had experiences closing our eyes or waking up first thing in the morning when it's dark or especially I, in the Navy, I actually had a number of experiences where we practice and actually build techniques and, and uh, procedures around not being able to see, whether that's in scuba diving, you know, I make this joke that the military takes these really fun things and makes them very unfun. So scuba diving is a great example. Everyone thinks scuba diving like, oh yeah, scuba diving in uh, Tahiti with your paddy license and seeing, you know, seahorses and octopus and such. That's like, that's not Navy diving. Navy diving is diving in this, you know, really cold water, very silty. It's completely black and you're underneath a ship. So it's like not particularly glamorous. Uh, but, it, you know, the, one of the things you have to do in that environment is figure out how do I how do I operate where my vision is occluded? How do I, you know, make sure I'm always on a line or I always tagging my buddy or something along those lines? You build you build out kind of the, the capacity to work in an environment you can't see. And then especially on deployment in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, we're predominantly working at night. So even though we have night vision, you know, with, with outside of that narrow little green tube, you can't really see hardly at all. So you have to learn how to operate in an environment you can't see. So that that's not necessarily the problem. The problem is the fact that you don't have the ability to cheat, that it's permanent, that I can't open my eyes or use night vision or any of those things. I have to find my way to do everything all, you know, all throughout the day from getting up in the morning to going to bed at night, getting my clothes on, finding my food, so on and so forth. I have to do all of that in the dark with no help and it's forever. That's the problem. Um, so how did you navigate that? For me, I think it's important to another, uh, take another step back the problem for me was overshadowed in a good way by a problem I thought I had a few weeks before. Uh, when I was injured in Afghanistan, when I stepped on the IED, uh, I remember immediately after the IED being convinced that I had died. I could, I could initially see just a little bit out of my left eye and I didn't see anything wrong. There wasn't no visible blood or damage. I wasn't missing a leg. You know, For most of my time on deployment, I had a number of friends who had lost legs or hands in IED incidences, blasts. In fact, we deployed uh, with a SEAL on my deployment who had lost a leg in a previous incident in Iraq, but was able to put on a prosthetic and deploy as though he was completely normal, which was incredibly incredible to see. But I had, you know, I had always had in my head that you know, this is what happens if you step on an IED, you lose a leg, you lose two, you put on prosthetics and you keep on marching forward. That was what I had in my head. I didn't have blindness, but in any case, when I immediately following the blast, when I looked down and saw both my legs were there, I thought, oh, that's not right. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. The fact that I'm not missing my leg. And uh, what made sense in my mind was I must be dead. 
So it took a while uh, to, to realize that I wasn't, but that, that experience was profound. The idea that I had experienced death, I had laid there and thought through my whole life and I had, you know, essentially said goodbye. Like I, I, I'm, I'm gone now. I'm moving on. I'm going on to whatever happens after you die. And that and there's a part of that that's too, in some ways, right? Where you were saying, I'm going to meet Tyler again. I'm going to meet Taylor again. Your or uh, uh, Tara again. Your 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 grandfather. Your you know your father as well, right? I mean, these are. I mean, like you'd been so close to death. Like this is. I mean, is that. Is that part of what's being alive, like being the most alive is when you're most vulnerable and having to rely on other people more so? Is that is that something that, that is a conscious thought? Is it how does it work in your mind? I think for me, it was it's more about gratitude. It's more about. This you know, every moment since the blast is a moment that I might not have had. In fact, it's a moment that I had reconciled was going away. So it's like bonus levels in a way. And, and it's something that's, it's really precious because it's something I didn't think that I would have. Uh, it's like, you know, when you do this, like, this is a terrible metaphor. You do the laundry and you find a $20, $20 bill in your pocket that you didn't know you had. You're like, oh my gosh, that $20 is more special than all the other $20 bills because it's one you didn't think that you had. Uh, the remainder of my life is something that I, I, you know, I didn't think that I would have. And now it's so special. It's so precious. And every day I wake up, there's a feeling of, um, of preciousness and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for every moment since then. And that's what's filled up my life in a way that I didn't have. I think from birth and from, uh, as we move along in, in most of our lives, we presume that we're going to be fine. We presume that we're going to go to sleep tonight. We're going to wake up tomorrow and everything's going to be fine. And we're going to go about our normal day, but coming up against the, what the a potential end to all of that really helps you see how amazing and miraculous every day is. So I think that that's, you know, the, the, the blast gave me an awareness of that magic and the preciousness of every moment and made me very grateful for that. And that's, what's really filled up my life in a, in a rewarding way. And, and that's a, a way of getting back to the, uh, the point you asked about getting over blindness. I think it's really important to contextualize. I think when people look at my story and they look at me, they look at it as a story of overcoming blindness. But what they don't see is that I didn't overcome blindness. I overcame death. I thought I had died and I came back. And in that juxtaposition for me in the hospital, within a week of that experience, when the doctor said I would be blind, for me... It wasn't that big of a deal. Don't get me wrong. It was traumatic. It was life-changing. It was challenging. It was scary. It was a lot of things. But compared to death, it wasn't that bad. And I did feel overwhelmingly grateful and excited about, I have before me an opportunity to completely redefine my life, you know? On one hand, I'm sad that I won't be able to continue doing this job that I did. And I'm sad that there's a big component of my identity that I won't be able to perpetuate. You know, I'm not going to be a naval officer. I'm not going to be an EOD officer. All this expertise that I have in diffusing bombs is, you know, not in any way directly relatable to any other job. So I'm going to have to figure all that out. 
But, you know, there was an opportunity ahead of me to figure out, all right, what am I going to do? And how, how can I be good at being blind? And I was lucky to have some people, this will resonate with you. I, I'm lucky to have some really uh, good people around me in that particular moment. And I remember even in Walter Reed, within a couple of days of figuring out that I would be blind forever, you know, the doctors say, we're not going to salvage your vision. There were people around me who, instead of being really downtrodden about that, were like, all right, cool blind, huh? That's our thing. So what is something that we can do that no blind person has ever done before? That was a distinct question by one of my friends in the hospital. And that really captured the moment where it was like, all right, you know, and we started going through the list as a, you know, how about climbing Everest? And like a blind dude's already done that. We're like, crap, we got to look for something else. How about skydiving? And then they're like, oh man, a blind dude's already done that too. We're like, ah, dang it. So what, 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 you know, how can we make our name as a blind person, I guess, was the, you know, the attitude of the moment. I think that really captures what we were going after. And, and, and I'm glad to say that in, in some ways we've been able to achieve that um, sort of, you know, mastering blindness over the last decade or so. What was the conversation like? Because you had a guy who came into your hospital as well, right? Who was a blind guy. And what was that conversation like? Because you have your doctors, you have your therapists, you have your friends, but this guy actually knows exactly what you're going through. What was that conversation like? That fellow was a, a guy named Ivan Castro, who I'm forever grateful for his you know, investment in me in that particular moment. And it was special. And it was, uh, Ivan was someone I could connect to on, on multiple levels. Not only was he blind, but he had been injured in a, in a similar fashion. Admittedly, his injuries had been more extreme than mine. Uh, which also helped me put things into perspective. But the fact that he had been traumatically injured and lost his his vision very quickly uh, was something I could relate to. But the, our conversation was an interesting one. And so, you know, it wasn't the uh, how do you climb Everest or how do you you know go to the Paralympics or whatever else. What was interesting to me about that conversation, because I could relate to Ivan and because I felt a kinship with him, I asked him basic things like, I asked him about his relationship with his wife. How'd you meet your wife? Because I knew that he had remarried since he was blind. And he was, he had just had a little baby girl at that moment. So I was asking him about changing diapers. And I remember being fascinated. I, I said, where'd you come from? He said, oh, you know, I was, I'm, I'm stationed in North Carolina and I do, I travel, I'm, a, I'm the recruiting office. I was like, you travel? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, you go to the airport? I remember thinking like a blind person is fundamentally incompatible with an airport think like an airport is it's a massive it's hard to navigate even if you're sighted you need to know what, what terminal you're in and what gate you're headed to and there's people going this way and that and there's not always an immediate discernible order to how things are working how on earth does a blind person go through the airport get on an aircraft fly to a different city get off that aircraft find a cab or an uber which by the way uber wasn't a thing back then so it's like you have to find a cab to get to a hotel that you're unfamiliar with. I thought the whole idea of traveling was not gonna be something I'd ever be able to do. But here, Ivan Castro, completely blind, blinded veteran, was able to travel to my hospital room and tell me and inspire me to know and understand that all of those things were within my grasp. All of those things from meeting and falling in love with, a, a, with uh, his new wife, to having a child, to changing the poopy diapers, to going to the airport, to, to traveling to different cities. These were all things that I would be able to figure out how to do. And that message needed to come from him because 
to your point, like you mentioned this thing, all of us have the ability to close our eyes and momentarily feel like what it is to be blind. Um, but I know that everybody else who has eyes can open them. And so they don't fully understand the idea of the permanence and the isolation that you might feel being in the dark. But Ivan did. Ivan knew what that felt like. And Ivan had faced the same exact problem that I had. And he knew and he had experienced how to get past all of those things. So for him to say, hey, man, all of this is was what lays before you. It was something I could believe. It's something I could wrap my arms around, something I could touch and feel and smell and, and, and understand for myself that I could be like him within a short amount of time. And um, we've been able to connect on down the line. And uh, I've been able to show him that, you know, his words and his sentiments really meant a lot to me and, and set a set a path for me that I've been able to follow. It's liberating, right? It's almost like, okay, I can do, I can have these great dreams, but this is the thing. This is the guy who knows and is like, you're going to be fine. And you're like, okay, I'm going to be fine. And as you're talking about the airport, I'm thinking about as a sighted person, if we go to an airport and we end up you know, because because you you're used to American airports, right? And they're kind of set up in a certain way. But then if we travel, the airports are set up in a different way. Where you think, where am I? Like, where's the 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 door that gets me to the place that I understand? And then things in a foreign language that are not helpful. And some foreign languages can't even be different. You know, different set of alphabet or whatever. And so so that can be really challenging for a lot for most people i mean super challenging but then you're you don't even have that luxury of a sign that you might not be able to read but you might be able to figure out something about what it might mean and and yeah so cool that ivan is is pushing you in that direction to say you're fine like this is this is it you're okay which is so helpful for all of us i read that you were saying that the blindness was not as bad as losing your identity as a naval officer. This is something you'd worked for and wanted for your whole life. I think a lot of people probably look at that and go, really, are you sure? Because blindness sounds like the hardest part. But for me, I completely understand that idea of like, the identity, the identity, you know, because you've gone through the identity of being a naval officer, but then the identity of being an athlete, the identity of, of then, I mean, there's so many different identities. You seem to have been able to move more quickly and easily than I think a lot of people. Is that fair to say that you've moved quickly and easily or is that the narrative that we on the outside want to tell it's a, also a very insightful question i think that it's a little bit of both i think that uh your observation is exactly right that the identity issue was far harder to wrestle with than the blindness issue i, I kind of alluded to it a moment ago maybe understated the identity problem but for me, I think the identity issue revolved around sort of two dimensions. One, there was sort of my perceived, my perceived value, my self-value. And then uh, the other aspect of it was the way I think others perceive my value. 
I think I think this is actually the, the idea of value is more important than identity. That identity is composed of the things that I think, the values that I can bring to the table. Uh, as a naval officer, can I add one thing to that? It's kind of interesting because there's the you're talking about the idea of the way you perceive yourself, the way others perceive you. And I think that there's a third way too, is the way that we perceive that others perceive us. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's like the communication loop, right? Like, uh, anyway, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's yeah, I, I could be completely wrong about the way, and often am actually, I think, continually wrong about the way I think people perceive me. Um, but that point, withstanding. Uh, the, the, all three of these loops were dramatically affected by this transition point in my life. And up to that point, while a component of my identity had been athletics, the reason that the, 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 the distinction around value is important is because sports for me was kind of always a means to an end. As a swimmer, while I you know, dreamed of going to the Olympics when I was really young, as I matured, there was a simultaneous rec recognition that I probably wasn't going to make the Olympic team, but there was an opportunity in swimming to go to a great college um, and kind of set me up for success in my career. So the, the value of swimming was always sort of like to get me to somewhere, to get me to the Naval Academy, at which point that would set me on this, you know, this endeavor to be, you know, a person of character, a, a leader, a person of value. And that person of value all revolved around my, my capabilities, my character, and my competencies as an EOD officer. I can wear this gear, I can deploy, I can mitigate these hazards, I can support these particular elements, so on and so forth. And there was a feeling that that value was very high. I had a very specialized expertise. There's a little bit of stigma built around like, you know, Navy special operations. And I felt like a kind of a tough guy. And I felt like I could do a lot of cool stuff. I could jump out of aircraft. I could scuba dive. I could do all these really cool things. And that built up this identity in my mind of I'm a cool guy and I do cool things and I'm capable and I'm strong and I'm, you know, blah, 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 blah. But literally all of that completely goes away uh, with, with the advent of my blindness. I'm not going to wear that uniform anymore. I'm not going to do that job. I can literally do almost none of those things. Um, where is my value coming from? How am I going to contribute? What, and then getting to your, what, how, you know, how do I perceive what people value in me? And then you know, to what extent is that accurate in my own mind? And that's where we get into this whole conversation about people's perception of those who are disabled. And I definitely hit a lot of that when I was first blind where I, I could very palpably feel that people didn't really have very high expectations of what my life would be would be like without being able to see. And uh, feeling that I, I had a lot of, like an example of this is I didn't want VA disability. And when I first got hurt, they were saying, you need to sign all these forms so we can enroll you in uh, you know disability benefits. And I kept saying, I don't want those benefits. I don't want, I don't want, I'm not disabled. I don't want those benefits. Because to me, that felt like if I took that benefit, I would no longer have the ability to contribute. That my value would go to zero. I'm just kind of like living off of these, you know, these VA checks month to month. And that's not the life I wanted to live. I wanted to have a job. I wanted to contribute. I wanted to be valued. I wanted to be, you know, involved. I wanted to continue to lead. I wanted to continue to 
you know, be important and matter uh, in the eyes of my community and, and so on and so forth. And that's what I really need to define for myself. And to an extent, I do think there was an uphill battle to, 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 to some degree in that space because of my blindness. I think not just because of the tactics of finding my way in the dark, but rather the way people perceive a person with visual impairment. And then there's the aspect of actually engaging is challenging because of accessibility, the ability to get a computer and, and find my way through the internet and all that was a whole set of challenges as well. Um, but in the meantime, I was working through the identity challenge. Now to get back to the, the, the core of your question, the speed at which I was able to sort of re-identify was really largely facilitated by the Paralympics. The fact that I could start competing and immediately see value. I can swim, I can swim well, I can win this race. And when I win a race, people are excited about it. They are inspired. There's a whole platform from which I can uh, pursue excellence, experience excellence, and then inspire other people to do the same thing. Wow, this is magical. And the, the true scale of that, I didn't fully understand until I was at the Paralympics in London and really felt the sort of magnanimity of the whole thing and realize this is where my value is. My value is to represent my country and my value is to win and my value is to inspire others and so on and so forth. And that set me on a trajectory where that became my new identity for a bit. Um, I will say there were stumbles along the way where I was able to sort of fill my vase of identity with Paralympics for a while. Uh, but then there was there were other aspects of my life that I kind of shortchanged. And you know some of those things came undone a bit uh, specifically like the ability to have autonomy and be able to do things on my own. And there was a moment with, I wrote about this in the book, but my, with my guide dog in a dog park, at one point I had a little bit of identity crisis where my dog wouldn't come back to me. And I felt this sort of crushing feeling of I'm stuck. I can't, I'm, I'm in this park. I don't know how to get back to my house. I'm wholly reliant. You know, I'm the 30 year old person, wholly reliant on this dog to get from point A to point B what have I done? What is my life? How is this? What's going on? This is not right. And the dog thinks this is the game. And the dog is walking away from me and la like laughing at me. And I was like, oh, this is terrible. Uh, but, you know, you know, bit by bit, I was able to start to kind of put the pieces back together. And I think the Paralympics helped me square away a component of my life. But then I still needed to work out, you know, how do I get from point A to point B? What are the exact ranges of my my capabilities and my limitations, you know, how do I, you know, engage in the social world in a way that's productive and, and fulfilling for me? How do I meet someone? And, you know, how do I start a family? And all those pieces were things I had to work out slowly, bit by bit over time. It's interesting to look at too, because I don't know, as I was reading your book, you talk about the plebe summer, the summer before you started at the Naval Academy, right? Or, or officially, I mean, like you're started, but, but, but sort of before classes begin, I guess, right? Exactly. And, and which is just, which is in some ways like a weed out kind of summer. And, but can I draw a comparison between that and possibly being blind? Because as I was reading the, the plebe summer, there was a part, the note that I took was that you can never be prepared and you're always prepared and you are always prepared, you know, cause it's, I mean, I, like, I look at you and, and reading some of your story, like 
I mean, you're talking about the Paralympics. You won your second gold medal on the anniversary of the day of the explosion. So you'd already won one gold medal. You won your second one on the anniversary, which is just mind boggling and so cool. But just looking at, at some of the struggles that you went through, just looking at, I mean, looking at swimming at the Naval Academy and thinking, well, your grades weren't that good, so you were going to quit. And in the moment that you were going to quit, your team voted you to be the captain yeah. of you know of the team. So you you can't quit on your team, as you said, you were there to be to be a leader. I mean, not necessarily a naval architect as much as you were to be a leader of of men. And so you're successful in that sense. Looking at it afterwards, when when you you'd made it through the EOD. And, and and you got a DUI on the way home and, and that you could then potentially, and luckily everybody was safe in the accident and, but you could get kicked out of, out of the Navy. And, and it was really in that process and people who stuck their, their neck out for you to say, no, this guy needs to go to Afghanistan. Like how much of all of that then comes through in this is another problem this is a problem that i have to solve but i've solved other problems yeah yeah that's exactly right i i think it's interesting how you framed it how you're like never prepared but you're always prepared I, I th that is actually a, an elegant way of trying to sum up how i try to live every day i try to live you don't know what is going to happen uh, but you can prepare just generally, you know, you can be a fit, you can be smart that we mentioned this, I think, before you hit the record button, this idea of like trying always every day to learn something, to get incrementally more fit, to, you know, make the most of every moment you have to gain as much experience and develop as much wisdom as you can. Because again, you don't, you don't know what the challenge of tomorrow is going to be. And I think you're right. When you frame out my background, I have developed a sense of confidence that I've faced a lot of these weird and unanticipated problems and issues. Some brought upon myself, like the DUI, but some that were, that, that came about on their own. Uh, and I have been able to navigate those things, but there was never really any kind of secret sauce. There wasn't any kind of like magic tool that I pulled out of my hip pocket to say, okay, here's how I'm gonna navigate this situation. It was always just in the same me in all of those situations that just tried to kind of navigate that using the same loop, you know, start from a place of grat gratitude and work hard, uh, work as hard as you can to focus on the problem at hand and learn the pieces of the puzzle, put them all together and, and kind of eventually be able to master that, uh, that issue. Uh, the military does an actual, an, a very good job of this on a micro level, you know, on day one of dive school, they presume that the student or the candidate has no idea about anything that has to do with scuba diving. And they teach you, here's step one, you put on your fins. All right, let's everyone put on their fins. Step two is do this. You put on your mask. Here's how you clear your mask, so on and so forth. You incrementally work your way through the steps until on day four, 
they're putting you underwater with scuba tanks on and beating you up while they're taking your regulator out of your mouth and tying it around the, the tanks in the back. And you're trained at that point, having worked your way through these basic steps to then calmly sit to your butt and take your regulator off your tanks and put it back in your mouth and safely navigate what is a intentionally adverse situation. Um, so I, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that loop, that sort of working your way through all these different challenging situations is a way to build the confidence to know that you can handle the unanticipated challenges of tomorrow. And I think it's important also to acknowledge that so, something will happen in your life. You know, live live as though to be prepared for the unanticipated challenges because it will happen. Something will happen. Uh, you know, you'll there's car accidents and cancer out there and airplane incidences, you know, political turmoil and global, you know, global warming and climate change and all of these things pose unforeseen challenges. So I think it's important to prepare today for the unanticipated challenges of tomorrow. And if my life story can be a testament to anything, it's that 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 works. You know, you can navigate these pretty significant life challenges through this relatively basic approach of, you know, valuing and and uh, utilizing challenge as a way of self-development. You talk about strife and struggle, and you 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 alluded to this, starting from a place of gratitude. How does that work, right? Things are going to happen to all of us, no matter who we are, no matter how well we try to insulate ourselves, something will happen that, that cuts us to the bone, really. But do you do you think about adding strife, adding struggle? to your day. I mean, some of that of being an athlete, like you've got to go out and you've got to do intervals. I mean, that's like adding strife, right? That's adding something that's really difficult. Uh, you know, some of the mindset, like, like when you're swimming to Alcatraz, the, the counting, counting your strokes, right? Which is in, in some ways gets you away from the pain, right? I, I, I do that sometimes when I'm doing intervals where I know that riding my bike I'm doing a minute on, a minute off, and I know that it's 100 and, 103 uh, RPMs. So I'm getting to 103, which counting to 103 sounds a whole lot easier in my mind than than going through the pain of going. Okay, I'm hoping that 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 uh, that the clock gets to one minute so I can actually stop. Do you add strife constantly? consciously to your day is it part of the goal setting is it part of the human the human growth how does that work the answer is yes for sure but i don't know that it's the loop is not like i don't get up in the morning and be like how can i make today tough on myself <laughs> i think uh for one, I think it's important. The reason I use language like that about strife and struggle and, and um, adversity and challenge uh, is to go back, especially going back to the previous question where you sort of reflected on these experiences that I've gone through. I think in reflection, I look back at all of those things, not like, thank God I got through that awful situation. I look back at it and I'm like, wow, look at the amount of growth that I experienced through all of those things, whether it was lessons I learned or capabilities I developed or more to the more to the point this confidence that I've been able to build in the idea that my approach is working you know just trying to be as prepared as possible be a good person be a fit person so on and so forth and when adversity inevitably strikes I've been able to work through that situation based on this somewhat a somewhat simple approach 
Um, so one, I, I think starting with this, the fact that like, I understand the value of those adverse situations. And so I know that the, the, the most opportunity, the optimal opportunity for personal growth often comes through these difficult situations, whether it's training, which is like you said, an intentional uh, kind of strife, or if it's through an unforeseen circumstance that you have to navigate. Uh, I think framing that as something you're grateful for and something that you're somewhat seeking is helpful in two ways. One, it helps you prepare. And two, when adversity strikes, instead of succumbing to a somewhat victim uh, mentality, I can't believe this thing has happened. Oh my God, how awful, blah, blah, blah. Instead of going down that loop, which I would categorize as a natural and, and, and you know something that's not shameful, but yeah, it's human, but it's not productive. It, you know, it's not, it's not helping you navigate the situation. It's just this abundance of emotion that's not really getting you anywhere. And it's awful. You can kind of, in my view, short circuit that a little bit by saying, awesome, this is an opportunity for great personal growth. Now, some people, I know that there's this toxic positivity thing out there where people look at me sometimes and say, oh, that's toxic positivity. It's, you know, discounting the negativity around a certain situation. That's certainly not what I'm trying to do. And, and, it, and I'm not going to foist my outlook on anybody for sure, but that's the way I look at some of those things. And it's, I have to coach myself sometimes when something bad happens, you're like, oh man, this is bad. But well, let me not dwell on the bad part. Let's say this is an opportunity for personal growth. This is an opportunity to navigate the situation. Let me problem solve. Let's look at this sort of as an engineer. What are the different aspects involved and how do we start to work our way towards a more optimal solution? So starting from that standpoint of the strife is worthwhile is really important. Now, for me, I think where this, like the intentional in, inducement of strife comes in the goal, goal setting process. And for me, there's two things I want to achieve. One, constant growth, constant improvement, constant gaining of knowledge or in, improving my physical fitness or taking on a new challenge. I want to be constantly sort of on that, uh, like being a little bit uncomfortable. I don't want to do the same reps over and over and over again. In fact, I don't want to digress too far, but that's exactly why I switched from swimming to triathlon after Rio was I felt like I knew and understood swimming. I didn't want to go back through another four years of doing the same reps over and over and over again. I felt like I had, if I hadn't reached my capability, I had gotten very close in swimming and I'm gratified to have the experience I did in Rio, but I wanted a new challenge. I wanted to keep kind of pushing myself into that uncomfortable domain. And then one other aspect of it is I, I, I've become keenly aware of some of the most rewarding experiences of my life not the adverse ones, like the upside ones, the like just feeling of tantamount achievement or uh, elation or exhilaration or whatever else. And I know you've felt these moments too, but it's, it's the top of the mountain feeling. It's the, I set about to do this thing that when I thought it at first, it made me uncomfortable. It gave me this pit in my stomach. And then it was even worse when I told people I was gonna go do it. Uh, for you, you know, climbing Everest or, you know, it's like, I want to break that world record or I want to do whatever. Like, if it doesn't make you a little uncomfortable, the goal's not high enough. It's not going to push you anywhere to say, you know, my goal, my ultimate goal is to make, you know, uh, oriental chicken thighs tonight for dinner. Like, that's not, <laughs> that doesn't give you a pit in your stomach. That's not challenging. It's not pushing you anywhere. It's not going to 
excite anyone. It's not going to inspire anyone. It's certainly not going to inspire you. You know, you already know how to do that. It's just going to be like blind repetitions. But for me to say, I'm going to break that world record. And I knew at the time, I don't know if I'm capable of that. I, I have to drop a full second. Uh, but I, I think it's possible. And to get there, I'm going to have to do these things. So I'm always trying to find, I, I'm kind of addicted to, I think, that goal. I, I want to do that thing that's really going to give me that pit in my stomach. And it's really going to be a, a challenge. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. That, like a PhD is a great example. I, I, I purposefully didn't want to get a PhD for most of my career because I didn't think I was going to do it. I didn't, I'm not, I didn't think I was a particularly good student. Um, it's a long time. It's five years, sometimes seven years. It's this dissertation that you have to create and you have to defend and people are going to try to rip it apart. And you have to stand up there and you know literally defend your idea and your research. And I don't want to have to do all, I don't know that I'm capable. I'm not creative enough to think of that stuff. Lots of smart people exist in the world and they've all thought about all of these things. What am I going to be able to contribute to that dialogue that involves Socrates and Nietzsche and all that sort of stuff? But here I am, I'm three of five years in and I think I have a good idea and I'm gonna, I'm confident in it, I'm gonna defend it. And it's been something that's kind of motivated me to get up each morning and push myself. So anyway, I'm like really rambling on at this particular moment, but um, that's my way of saying, um, I'm addicted to those goals. I want a goal always that's gonna give me that pit in my stomach that's, that I'm a little bit afraid of, that I know I need to hold myself accountable to because not because I need to achieve that goal, but because I know that's the way to like squeeze every drop out of life, to get the most joy, the most fulfillment, the most satisfaction is to push myself as far as I can go. Because when I've been able to do that, I've had that feeling, that like top of the mountain feeling. And I, I've also not reached that goal a lot of times too. But that, you know, you don't remember those moments. You just, when you don't achieve the goal you set out for yourself, you reiterate and say, okay, you know, I'm going to get it at next year. Or I'm going to redefine or I'm going to change my scope or I'm going to re, you know, redirect myself in one shape or form. And you don't really remember those reiteration moments as much as you remember the top of the mountain. So um, that's where, you know, I've been able to squeeze every drop out of life. And I recommend or try to inspire people to do the same thing. You're not really going to gain that same level of satisfaction by binge watching on Netflix. You're not going to gain that same level of satisfaction uh, by, you know, being a recluse or playing video games or whatever else, but, but by setting that goal and holding yourself to account and being patient over the long term and getting to the top of that mountain, that's like the absolute best in life. Huh? Do you, do you, do you agree with that? Do you like, is that what you felt like when you were up on top of that mountain or what? Oh yes. Yes. I, I definitely did. And yeah, the top of the mountain is because it's also the, the top of the mountain is so representative of everything you had to do to get there and you have to you have to stare down your fear which is which is the lo most limiting factor i find is is my own fear i mean this is this is back in your book your father was saying when you were going down to to go get the conch uh, the conch shell right the conch shell and said you have to acknowledge and embrace that fear and, and and recognize that yes, you do have the ability, and, and climbing the mountain is the same thing. It's like people ask me all the time, "What did you do to prepare?" And I said, "Well, everything that ever went wrong in my life," and, <laughs> <laughs> which is really kind of an answer because you just don't know what's going to happen as you're climbing this mountain, and you don't know what's going to happen 
in the pursuit of this all-encompassing goal, which is a super personal goal. And, and preparing for that, the strife, the struggle that we're talking about too, like, I mean, I think that, I mean, sometimes taking a cold shower is that reminder of strife and struggle of getting in and going, this is absolutely miserable. Why would I ever want to do this? And, and you finish and you go, okay, well, it really wasn't that bad after you're done and, and sort of reminding ourselves and finding ways within our day to remind ourselves. But I talked a little bit about your father, you know, which is, which is sort of, you've, you've had amazing leaders as well. I mean, you're, you're talking about leadership and teaching about leadership, but from your, from your father, from the examples of your, of your grandfathers, uh, I mean, you went into naval architecture because of, because of, one of your grandfathers, right? I'm assuming that that's what he had done. But even like you you taught at the at the Stockdale Institute as well, right? So so Stockdale, I mean, Navy guy had spent seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton and created a way to to maintain contact with the other prisoners so that they didn't feel isolated, so that there was this sense of unity. I mean, what does that kind of leadership, that kind of mentorship mean to you in your pursuit of taking what you've done and being able to help other people? Yeah, you're 100% right. I've, I've really benefited from a lot of really great role models throughout my life who have been able to, to do two things. One, you know, live that good example, be that role model, be the person that I could, you know, want to emulate, but also were at times able to intervene in my life in a way to either give me advice or prevent, present me an opportunity that helped me learn something or helped me kind of be on the path that I was on. So I'm very grateful for all of those people. And it is definitely shaped the person that I want to be, I want to be constantly setting that example. I want to be the person that my grandfather was for me. And, and uh, the way that I, I tell my grandfather's story all the time was I, I, I knew him to be a hero of mine before I knew anything about him. You know, as a little kid, two years old, three years old, you look up to this tall person who's just looking after you. And I remember being, you know, going around going to the going to Home Depot or the grocery store or wherever else I was going with my grandfather because he used you know he'd look after me every once in a while it'd be just me and him and I could very vividly remember understanding even at the age of three years old that this man my grandfather is a man that people respect people want to sit with him and talk to him and hear what he has to say about the world and they want his advice and they want and they look forward to seeing him. When my grandfather would show up, people would get excited. I just remember feeling that and understanding that this man is a great man and I want to be like him. And then it was only after the fact that I learned about you know, him being in the Navy in World War II and him being really badly injured and him falling in love with his nurse, my grandmother, and you know, feeling and understanding that greatest generation story is what added context to this understanding of who he was and, and, and why I respected him. 
but then it started to shape who I wanted to be as well. So again, that's a long way of getting back to the idea that I, that's, I want to try, or at least, you know, that's the, that's probably the longest form goal of the previous thing we were just talking about. It's like, I don't know that I can be my grandfather. I don't know that I can be that man. I, you know, he was so big in my mind when I was three and four and five years old. I don't know if I'll ever live up to who he was, but I will continue to try. That's the goal that gives me the pit in my stomach. Can I be that person over the entirety of my life? Can I be a person of great character? Can I inspire others? Can I set that example? And that's something that, you know, every once in a while, when I sit and think about it, I have to ask myself, am I being that person? And uh, that, that gives me a pit in my stomach to try to live up to that legacy. But I think I'm, I think I'm doing it incrementally, but I still have a long way to go. So it's something that keeps me motivated. Um, one other aspect of that I'll, I'll add, and, and I talk a little bit about this, you know, when I give speeches, but this idea that I think we, we put a lot on our heroes. You know, we, we put a lot on Superman and, and whoever else we want to make the hero. We, we think that they've got to be the perfect model in all circumstances. But when I look back on my life, you know, my dad taught me some things, but he wasn't the end all be all hero. My grandfather taught me a lot of things and he's, you know, probably the biggest example of a hero in my mind, but he wasn't perfect either. And he gave me some things, but I got you know, different things from other people, my swim coach, I get things from my wife, I get things from my mentor, Doc Thomas at the Stockdale Center, I get different things from Stockdale himself, though I never met him, you know, as you mentioned, I get things from you as a role model. But none of these people was, is like the one avatar of heroism that I have in my mind, I get little things from all kinds of people. So reflecting that back on myself, I'm not going to be the end all be all hero to anybody and nor, nor should I be, but I can, I can help in incremental ways. I can take a meeting with one of my students and help them find, you know, their passion. I can, you know, go and give a speech at a school nearby or in California or wherever else I can, you know, the little things that I do, I, I'm hoping not to be the end all be all hero, but to contribute in little ways to little legacies for people who are aggregating and finding their own ways. Uh, does that make sense? Like, I don't, I don't wanna try to be everything to everybody, but I wanna help in little ways along the way. Does that make sense? It, it, makes, it makes perfect sense. It could, because I think that in some ways, what we're doing when we have heroes is we're shaping a hero. We're shaping, we're shaping a standard to which we want to try to hold ourselves. And, and so, so, so you're doing that, but also recognizing that we are human that we are fallible, that we are going to make mistakes, that we do have weaknesses, sometimes profound ones. It, it's really interesting because so much of what you do is about unity, about connection. I have to say that when I was doing some of my research, I read the poem that your sister wrote for you at Christmas. And 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 when she got to the point of we share the same eyes, I have to admit, I, I, I cried. I mean, it brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> why did you, because, because you have prosthetic eyes, right? And, and so why did you, why, why did you have your prosthetic eyes look like your sister's eyes or try to recreate or I don't know exactly the right word to, to say this, but why did you make that choice? That's a great observation. And 
there's a, a fun update to that uh, that I'll get to in a moment. But you know, when I was first blinded, I talked a lot about my experience with blindness and in kind of the juxtaposition with my death and all that sort of stuff and the way I navigated it. But it's often overlooked or misunderstood the way that the family members or the loved ones of someone going through a traumatic instance has to also reconcile that. You know, my mom, for an example, and this is really near and dear to me now with my little my little girl, I kind of, I get a glimpse into what my mom's experience probably was like now that I have a daughter of my own and so much of my life revolves around nurturing her and protecting her. And I get like just nauseous to think like if, if she closes her hand in a cabinet door or something like that, I just feel terrible. And what it f must have felt like for my mom, having done that same loop with me as a baby to watch me grow up and then to see me in the hospital with stitches across my face and a tube in my throat and all that sort of stuff must have been just existentially devastating for my mother. Brutal. And yeah, and I, I don't think I fully understood or appreciated that. I think when I was going through that experience, I was definitely grateful to have her around, but I don't know that I was able to be so empathetic to what she must have been seeing. It's taken a long time to gain just a small insight to what that must have felt like. But uh, to the point of your question, the same was true for my sister, who was much younger. She was only 19 years old at the time I got hurt. And I could tell that my injury was difficult for her to really put into perspective. And I think for all of her life, I'm eight years older than her. So she always, you know, physically looked up to me, whether she did, you know, uh, in her mind is as me as a role model. I'm not sure. I think she would say probably yes, but, uh, but physically she's looking up to me because I'm eight years older than her. And I took care of her a little bit when she was a baby and we had a very close relationship, but I think she saw me in sort of that, that hero way where, you know, nothing's ever going to go wrong with my brother. He's, He's strong. He's capable. He jumps out of these aircraft. He wears his uniform. He wears the ballistic, the armor. And he go. He went to Iraq and came back and just fine. So he, she probably lived, or had at least an idea in her head that my my brother's indestructible, as I probably believed I was myself. To see me in the hospital in that way and to face this long term reality of blindness was probably as difficult for her as it was for me in a lot of different ways. So I knew I want. I wanted opportunities for her and I to go through that rehabilitation process together. And there were fun aspects of it too, where she came to the VA and we learned Braille together. Um, you know, I should admit, I'm not very good at Braille even to this day, but my, I, think, I think my sister's actually better at Braille than I am, but we learned it together. We did aspects of my rehab together. And when the opportunity came to get my prosthetic eyes made, it was just a natural fit to say, at least why don't we do this together? And my eyes before I lost them in, in Afghanistan looked almost exactly like my sister's eyes. So it was like, perfect. Like I need to get eyes made. This person needs to get a model of what the eyes should look like and what the color should look like. Why don't you come with me? And so we went to the, the, uh, the uh, ocularist, they say, and the ocularist painted my old eyes to look exactly like my sister's. And it was like a cathartic experience for us to be able to do that together and 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 have that node of recovery. Like I've got these new eyes now and I don't look odd. And I, you know, I can carry these with me everywhere I go. And occasionally when we're together, people will comment like, wow, the, you guys' eyes look exactly the same. We say they are exactly the same. <laughs> um, now the update to that story is, so uh, I have at time I can be a doofus at times. And I did a doofus thing this last summer. Uh, I'm happy to say we brought my daughter to the beach for the first time during summer vacation. And we're at the beach. 
and the swell is up a little bit. And me being a, a beach guy, I'm like, oh, I got to get into the water. I got to ride some waves. And I, I've been really diligent about always wearing goggles in the ocean, uh, but I didn't have goggles this time. And I thought, oh, it'll be fine. So I went out and sure enough, I'm body surfing and boom, one of my eyes popped out into the into Mother Ocean and you're not getting an eye back from Mother Ocean. So I had, to, I had to get a new pair of eyes made and we brought my daughter to the office just incidentally where the eyes were being made. And my, my daughter's eyes are a beautiful combination of my old eyes and my wife's eyes. It's really deeper blue. And the ocularist suggested, well, you know, I can incorporate that in your new set of eyes. So my current eyes are... A, a combination of my sister's eyes and my daughter's eyes, which are now, ex ex it's an extremely fun story to tell. That is, that is absolutely awesome. You didn't tell us though, that you also had to get out of the ocean after having lost an eye. <laughs> what yeah, was that I, reaction like? Well, you know, it's funny. I, so I'm in the ocean, I'm in the water. I, I ride the wave. I lose the eye. Dang it. I can feel it. And my, my the, only, the nearest person to me was my father-in-law. So I had to be like, hey, hey, Bob, does it look like I'm missing an eye? And he was like, uh, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> uh, but he handled it well. And then, you know, when I, without a prosthetic, it just kind of looks like I'm squinting my eye. So it's not that bad. I walked up on the beach and then thankfully my buddy Nick was with us. He ran to a CVS and got me an eye patch. So it, it kind of fit summer vacation. It was thematic. I was a pirate for the rest of summer vacation and no, everyone was nonetheless wiser. And it was fortuitous because uh, these prosthetic eyes only last really a, about a decade anyway. So my old eyes were getting towards a point where they needed to be replaced. So it was a nice forcing function for me to get in and, and get my new, my next decade set of eyes. Which is great. And now they're a combination of your sister's eyes and your daughter's eyes. We talk a bit about, I mean, because we've talked about blindness, right? And so blindness is the lack of sight. But when you were when you were the explosives expert, you were you were x-ray, right? I mean, you were you were the guy who who could see what other people can't see. You also had one of the coolest endorsements that I've ever heard of. So so the Eon e uh, watch, is that how you pronounce it, Eon? E1. E1, E1, okay, that makes more sense. I was trying to combine it in, all into one word. The E1 is, I mean, this is this is funny. Was, was it for you, was it important that this watch, the Bradley E1 watch, that it was beautiful? I mean, it is a spectacular looking watch, but it's also tactile, right? Can you explain a little bit of what this watch is all about, but also was it important to you that it was a beautiful timepiece? Yes. Yeah, that's core to the DNA of the timepiece. Uh, I think it's important that I clarify that it wasn't my idea. It was uh, Hyung Soo Kim was the founder of the company. And he and I met very early on when he was conceiving of this idea. And uh, we partnered up and it's been a really cool initiative to kind of bring the Bradley into the market. But the idea E1 is short for everyone. And there was this, you know, Hung Su was deeply affected. He had a friend who was a blind software engineer. And he was, he, I think he was in business school and he was kind of doing the whole like, you know, Shark Tank, trying to figure out your entrepreneur idea. And he was talking to his blind friend 
And his blind friend uh, reflected that he didn't really wear a watch. He said, why? He said, well, you know, the only watches that are available for blind people are these sort of, you know, you know, poorly made, cheap, uh, and they're embarrassing. I had to hit this button and the, the read the time is three o'clock, that kind of thing. It's, it like highlights me as a person who's blind, as weird or as different. And the, his friend said, I don't want to highlight myself and I don't want this cheap, crappy watch. Everyone else gets to wear these nice, you know, dive watches and Rolexes and all that other stuff. Uh, it's not for me. It's just not something that I feel a part of, you know. And that feeling of exclusion is what Hung Su dialed in on. It wasn't necessarily the watch. It was the fact that this blind person didn't have access to this other thing that everyone else had. And he, feel, he felt excluded in, an, in, a, in a way. So he on his set about changing that problem. And he thought, what if we developed a beautiful, sought after, well-engineered, high quality, luxury timepiece that everyone would want? Oh, by the way, it works for blind people too, because you can touch the timing mechanism without breaking it. That was the initial engineering challenge. The whole idea was inclusively design this thing that we all think we know and reframe it in a way that was accessible to everyone. And so the way that they came up with doing it was these two rotating ball bearings. So instead of an analog clock with a short hand and a long hand for the hour and minute, there's these two rotating ball bearings, one on a small circle on the face that represents the minutes, and then one on a long circle on the outer axis that uh, axis that represents the hours. And so there's these two ball bearings that rotate around on magnets that are on the inside because the quartz mechanism is delicate and you can't touch it, uh, but you can put magnets on it. And these ball bearings can then be the thing that you touch. And if you knock them off of their track, they just rotate around back and then stick to the actual hour and minute hand. Um, and it was kind of a very simple idea that was well done. And we've you know used quality materials and it's been great. You know, we did a Kickstarter campaign back in 2014 and we needed something like 30K to develop a few prototypes. And in a matter of 28 days, we made $600,000 in orders uh, for the Bradley. And it's been, it's won a number of design awards and it's been an exciting initiative to be a part of. But the most exciting part about it is it's not selling a product, but rather having the excuse to talk about, you know, the disability experience, the accessibility of things that we think we know and this idea of inclusive inclusive design and the Bradley embodies those ideals and I'm very proud of it. I wish that one of my blind teammates on the ski team had one because back in 98, when we were competing in Nagano, we were sharing an apartment in Japan and the walls were really like the walls that you'd see kind of in a sushi uh -huh. place where it was like yeah, rice exactly. paper. And he, you know, is my bug, good buddy, Bobby McMullen, was nervous, you know? I mean, you're just, you're nervous. You're there to compete. And he's waking up in the middle of the night and wants to know what time it is. And, you know, it's 2.34 in the yeah, morning. Exactly. I'm, like, I'm like, I will wake you up. You'll be fine. Don't worry. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's a, embarrassing. It's such a cool solution. We're going to have to get you out soon. But can you can you just talk us through the world record, breaking your world record? Because this had stood for over 30 years, right? And and you were half a second off in the prelims and but two seconds in front of everybody else in the field. And 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 also 
please uh, the the challenge of going straight as as a blind swimmer. Yeah, so that's exactly it. That's the name of the game for a blind swimmer is trying to get up and down the lane with touching the lane line as little as possible. There's a couple different approaches, and we kind of went through all of those at the very beginning. You could either follow the lane line or you can uh, adapt your stroke. Me having been an able-bodied swimmer for a number of years, I didn't want to. Uh, my theory was I'd rather gamble. I'd rather try to sit. I'd rather try to hit the, the middle of the lane and truck down as fast as I can. And um, if I crash, then I crash. But I'm never going to be as fast as I'm capable of going if I'm following the lane line and touching it with my hand every stroke. Um, the compromise I made is I, I changed my stroke a little bit where I lowered my hand recovery. So I'm basically looking for the lane line on either side. And ideally, if I graze the lane line with my hand on my arm recovery, I can make a small incremental course correction to keep myself in the clean water as much as possible and stay as straight as possible. And then the only other way to get better at that is just like everything else is just practice, 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 feeling the water flowing across your body. And it's not anything that you can, uh, you can't like build a, a rule or, you know, like in golf, you can kind of be like, well, move your wallet to your left-hand pocket. And then, you know, sometimes that changes your swing. You know, it's not like that in, in swimming. It's really something you just have to feel over and over and over again. And you sort of have to hit that sweet spot. In London, I definitely did not have that sweet spot hit. I was really just kind of, you know, hoping for the best every time I dove in as far as whether I would crash or not. But after a number of years of practicing through into Rio, I had really built a lot of confidence in that I'm, I'm not crashing all that often. And, and if I am, I'm able to really kind of course correct really effectively. And a lot of it had to do with just the feel of being in the middle and staying as straight as possible. Um, as far as the record was concerned, so I had you know, had the success I had in London, but, you know, for me as a sports fan, if I was just objectively to read my own story after London, I might've read it and said, oh, it's a fluke. You know, you got lucky. Maybe he was in good shape, you know, in Afghanistan, you didn't have to spend a whole lot of time being blind. It's not really like, you know, it's a fluke. You couldn't do it again. So I wanted to beat my own criticism and say, no, I can do it again. And I, in fact, I'm going to improve on it. And I won the hundred and the 400 in, in London, but I lost the 50 to Bones and Yang out of China. I thought I can win that race. So I'm going to win all three. And as I said that to my coach, he said, well, why not try to break a record? He thought I could break the 400 record. I did not, but I settled on the, on the, on the hundred. I thought the hundred was more approachable. I said, and this is break freestyle, that hundred right? record. Exactly. Freestyle. And uh, we set about doing it. I got really close in 2014 uh, to breaking the record, but I biffed the turn and uh, ended up uh, 1100th short. And you, you talked about the turn just so that people get a, a bit of an idea. Can you tell people how you approach the wall and what your preparation is and how somebody actually helps you? Sure. So my approach is full speed. You know, it's a hundred. I want to get in and out as quickly as possible, but the way that we adapted to being blind is I do count my strokes, but strokes are variable. I, you know, any number of things can happen. And in swimming, we, we do a pretty aggressive taper. So you're, you know, through your season, you're training extremely hard. And then when you're going to go to your big race, you actually, you know, reduce your training load, which makes you feel fresh. Your muscles feel clean and great. And, you, you know, get a nice massage beforehand. So you're feeling 
amazing and you actually shave down. So you just feel so slick in the water. And, you know, routinely when I taper, my stroke count will go down by three and four strokes, but it's not always predictable. So stroke count's not a reliable way to turn. Instead, a coach, my coach, Brian Leffler, will stand on the opposing end and he'll have a cane with a tennis ball on it, one of my blind canes. And as I approach the wall, he'll get really, he'll get ready. And then I get there and he'll tap me in the back with my, that, that tennis ball will strike me right in the shoulder blade. And that indicates to me that I'm about a meter away from the wall. And at that point I need to flip as quickly as possible. So what's happening is I'm moving down at full speed. I'm counting my strokes at 33, 34. I'm starting to get ready for the tap around 37 or 38. I'm going to get that tap. And as soon as I get that tap, I, I do a, an aggressive flip turn, just like I would have done when I was sighted. My feet will hit the wall. I'll push off and go back the other way. At World Championships in 2014, the tap came just a hair late. And that meant that I was un, you know, uncomfortably close to the wall. So I came around on my somersault and my feet hit just really abruptly. My feet actually bounced off the wall and I had to push them back and then push off again. But that, that right there is at least 0.3, if not 0.4. And I knew it in the moment. I sprinted as hard as I could to get into the wall and I was 1100 short. So it was definitely that biff on the turn that, that cost me that world record. And, you know, you know we're not going to, you, you only taper once per season. And so I didn't hit it again in 2015. So it meant like my taper, my one more taper for that, that whole quad was going to be the Paralympic games. Now it ended up being, you know, fortuitous in a sense that the hundred was my last event. So in swimming, we have, you know, a, a pretty rigorous schedule of competitions throughout almost all nine days of the Paralympics. Um, not everyone competes on every day, but it's, it's a, you know, you might compete two days, have one off one day on, you know, so on and so forth. For me, it was day seven was the last day. I'm going to swim the hundred meter freestyle. Um, I did back off a bit in prelims, uh, not going for the record necessarily, but just wanting to secure my spot in the finals. And then, so I knew my one shot is the night's finals and I'm geared up for it. I want to break this record. I had had some success. I was feeling good in all my other races. Um, but really, you know, swimming, it's only one shot. If I screw it up or I biff my turn, that there it goes. And leading into the race, right before our 100, something weird happened where we're in the ready room. They're about to announce us. And then some official comes in and says, uh, sorry, guys, just hold up. You know, there's an, uh, something in the pool. We have to go check it out. And there was someone had left a cap or something in the pool. Then they go check it out. So we sat in the ready room for an additional 45 minutes. And the whole time, I'm just trying as hard as I can not to freak out because I know I don't want to blow all this energy. I don't want to get overly nervous. I'm just trying to control what I'm controlling and yada, 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 doing that self-coaching and visualization. But now I'm, I'm tortured by like, what's going on with the pool? there's a cab in the pool. What's going on? What, how long are we going to be here? And, you know, should I go to the bathroom and like all that? But you're like, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And finally they say, okay, you're going to announce us. They announced us. We walked out. Uh, I do. I think I do a good mental job of once I'm behind the blocks, I start to feel very comfortable. My energy starts to come down. And you guys and are like prize fighters though. When you come into the pool. Yeah. Yeah. I, you want to, I mean, it's kind of silly in the, in, when I was an able-bodied swimmer, part of it's like you want to intimidate the person in the lane next to you, but that's kind of silly in the blind world because we can't see each other anyway. So we don't do it. I guess it's just like a show. Just a, get yourself into the game. And for me, getting into the game is 
giving me that that feeling like I just need to execute. I to your your point earlier, I've done the preparation. I've put in the training. I've ate all the right stuff. I'm tapered, I'm shaved, I've got the right suit on, the right cap on. Just go in and execute. You know what this is. I knew every stroke of that hundred. So I um the referee blows the whistle, dove off, and I just felt like lightning. And it worked. It was, I knew the whole time from from my pop out, just feeling good, feeling good, feeling good. I almost remember smiling like this is it. But then I started to get nervous about the turn. This is where you know, I biffed it last time. And I get ready, 37, boom, flipped. And I, as I came around, I was waiting for when am I going to hit the wall with my feet, hit it at the exact right spot and just jammed, pushed off. And I felt there it was. I got through the turn just fine. Just a smooth and cruising, feeling great return. I touched the wall and I knew, I knew that was it. I knew I had gotten it, but I had to wait. And then my coach said, 56, 56.15. I had broken it, but I had broken it by like a half a second. So it's not like I missed it by the 1100s. I blew through it and I was just elated. And what was great about that moment was that was the end of my program. So it was the biggest thing that I wanted to do those whole games I blew through it by a half a second and I literally don't have anything else to do other than enjoy, you know, the aftermath of winning that race. And it was awesome. It was extremely joyous. My family was in the stands. We went and had dinner that night and boy, it was the top of the mountain feeling for sure. It was so cool to watch because you talk about the turn and you went into 25, your competitor was close and you came off of the turn and you were ahead and then they have the world record line that's there. And then the last 25, you just, it was a little bit ahead of you. Then you went and blew right through and right past that green line in the last 25, which no matter who you are, that last 25 is hard. And that's when you were at your best. It was so cool to watch it. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. I am jealous of the students that will get a chance to take your class, the, the nature of leadership, the nature of compassion, the nature of, of community, of unity, of happiness that, that, that you're going to bring to these students. I think it's going to be a tremendous gift. So Thank you for joining us and, and good luck in your pursuits as you as you move through your PhD too. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for having me today. It's been a, re in a really enjoyable conversation. And if you ever happen to be in Annapolis, come on by the classroom and we'd love to have you. That would be awesome. That would be a treat. I will take you up on that. That would be awesome. So thank you again. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed our talk. If you have, please tell your friends, tell your friends to tune in. Please like us, please follow us. Please subscribe and you will get a chance to experience these great stories and we'll continue to bring you great ones. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whitehall Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.